Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, A Lover's Prayer. It's based upon the lectionary readings from May 16th, 2021, the seventh Sunday of Easter. For the seventh Sunday of Easter, the Revised Common Lectionary always gives us a portion of Jesus' high priestly prayer, the culmination of his farewell discourse to his disciples. The setting is the upper room on Monday Thursday. Jesus has just washed his disciples' feet, foreseen Judas's betrayal, predicted Peter's denial, promised his disciples the Holy Spirit, and offered them urgent words of instruction. Time is running out, and Jesus knows it. The atmosphere in the room, if we take the liberty of imagining it, is quiet, tender, anxious, pensive. Jesus is troubled full of pain at the prospect of saying goodbye to his friends, and the ardor of his words and gestures is the ardor of a lover. Even as he knows that his life on earth is drawing to a close, he yearns to remain in communion with his beloved. What would you do in such a moment if you were Jesus? If separation loomed, if there was so much more you wanted to say and do, if the letting go felt like it would split your aching heart, what would you do? Jesus prays. In the final moments before his goodbye, he looks toward heaven and prays. Can we pause for a moment and consider how remarkable that is, that God prays? I've heard some people call the high priestly prayer the other Lord's Prayer, the one we don't memorize and recite on Sunday mornings. It's certainly not polished and poetic like the Our Father. It doesn't flow or cover its spaces with anything like efficiency. It's long, rambling, and rather hard to follow. And though the disciples are meant to overhear the words, Jesus' tone has an urgency and passion to it that is achingly private. Jesus isn't engaging in a teaching moment with this Lord's Prayer. He's rending his heart. I am asking, Jesus says. I am asking. How surprising is it that God incarnate spends his final moments with his friends in humble, anxious supplication on their behalf? Knowing full well the trials and terrors that lie ahead, he prays into uncertainty. He hopes into doubt. He trusts into danger. In an outpouring of words and emotions, Jesus asks God to do for his friends what he himself can no longer do, to be for them in spirit what he can no longer be for them in body. Protect them, Jesus prays. Protect them by your name. Protect them from the evil one. Protect them so that they can know unity, joy, and truth. Protect them. Do you know this Jesus, the one who pleads so earnestly? Most of us know the Jesus who teaches, heals, feeds, and resurrects. But do we know this one, this vulnerable, tender-hearted lover who in this passage does the single hardest thing a human being can do? He sends his cherished ones into a treacherous world on nothing but a hope and a prayer. He entrusts the treasures of his heart to the vast mystery that is intercession. I am asking, as if to say, I don't know what you will do with my asking. I don't know how or when or if you will answer this prayer. I can't force your hand. But I'm staking my life and the lives of my loved ones on your goodness, because there is literally nothing more I can do on my own. I have come to the end of what this aching love of mine can hold, guard, and save. I am asking. To wonder what role prayer plays in our world, a world rife with tragedy, illness, injustice, and oppression, is to raise the hardest questions I can think of about God, questions I don't know how to answer. 
Does God intervene directly in human affairs? Does God's intervention or lack of it depend in any way on our asking? Can prayer change God? As has been the case in many areas of my faith life, my beliefs about prayer have changed a lot over the years. I was raised to believe that God intervenes very directly in human affairs and that intercessory prayer has powerful and undeniable real-world effects. As a child, I believed with all my heart that prayer heals diseases, prevents car accidents, feeds hungry children in faraway countries, fends off nightmares, prevents premature death, and stops the bad guys. As a teen and young adult, much of that certainty collapsed under the weight of life experience. Diseases didn't get better. Car accidents happened. I had nightmares. Babies starved, young people died, and bad guys won the day. When I asked my elders to explain these discrepancies, they gave me two answers. One, you need to pray with more faith, and two, sometimes God's answer is no. Both answers struck me then and strike me now as inadequate. Today, I live along the borders of a more complicated world. I have friends and family members who pray for parking spots, lost house keys, little league victories, and Ivy League admissions for their children. But I also have friends who avoid intercessory prayer on principle, convinced that the true purpose of prayer has nothing to do with asking God for stuff. In their words, he's God, not Santa Claus. The challenge of intercessory prayer is that it is subjective. What looks like God's yes in my eyes might easily look like God's no, God's silence, or even God's non-existence in yours. When is an answer to prayer really an answer? When is it coincidence, randomness, a trick of the light? The cost of our liberty, a cost God daily chooses to endure, is that we can't say for sure, not in this lifetime. So why do we pray? For me, one answer is that I pray because I'm compelled to do so. Something in me cries out for engagement, relationship, attentiveness, and worship. I pray because my soul yearns for connection with an other who is God, and that connection is best forged in prayer. With words, without words, through laughter, through tears, in hope and in despair, Prayer holds open the possibility that I'm not alone, and that this broken, aching world isn't alone either. I pray, as C.S. Lewis writes, because I can't help myself, because a need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. That is one answer, but maybe this week's gospel reading offers another one. I pray because Jesus did. I pray because I love, and prayer is what lovers do. We ask. We stretch out with our requests and intercessions. We yearn with our prayers towards communion with the source of all love so that our human loves might be secured, strengthened, sustained, and sanctified. I ask because Jesus asked. Asking is the last thing he did before his arrest, the last tender memory he gave his friends. He didn't awe them with the grand finale of miracles, neither did he contemplate their futures in despair. He looked up to heaven with a trembling heart and surrendered his cherished ones to God. Jesus asked because he loved. May we do likewise. For books this week, Dan reviews Me by Elton John. I enjoyed reading this memoir by Reginald Kenneth Dwight, Sir Elton John, after enjoying the movie about his life called Rocket Man, which movie was produced by his husband David Furnish and for which John himself was one of the executive producers. Both the book and the movie proceed along three storylines. The first part is about the music. John writes that as a young boy he was obsessed with music and that his childhood dream was to be a musician. At age 11, he earned a scholarship to the Royal Academy of Music, where for five years he went for lessons every Saturday. And then, a couple twists of fate. 
After failing a music audition, a music executive handed John a random envelope of lyrics as he left, written by his close friend and collaborator of 50 years, Bernie Toppin. Then, rather against his wishes, at the age of 23, he did a show at the Troubadour in Los Angeles, which proved to be the night everything changed. The show shot him out of a cannon and into stardom. Fast forward to the result. He and Bernie Toppin have produced 30 albums and 300 million records. John also takes an unsparing look at the second theme, which is condensed in the very first minute of the movie. Dressed in a flamboyant orange devil suit with huge wings and horns, John walks into an AA meeting of circled chairs and announces, My name is Elton and I'm an alcoholic, a cocaine addict and a sex addict. I'm bulimic. I also have problems with shopping. By repeatedly cutting back to this first scene, it's made clear that this is John's story of redemption, not just from substance abuses, but from the wounds of an emotionally distant nuclear family that did not know how to love a young gay child who was also a musical prodigy, and then aggravated by global fame, money, debauchery, and corruption when he was only 25. John writes that he laments his absolutely dreadful behavior, how by 1974 his life had become a personal catastrophe, all the excess and stupidity, his egotism and narcissism. It was shameful, he writes, the completely unnecessary bubble that fame and wealth lets you build up around yourself if you're stupid enough to follow it. It's a grotesque, soul-destroying environment to live in, and you created it yourself. There were three suicide attempts. And so the third theme of a life beyond music and debauchery. John has been sober for nearly 30 years. He writes that he's attended over 1,400 AA meetings all over the world, He has raised $450 million for his HIV-AIDS foundation, and by the end of the book, he's enjoying being a father to his two children with his husband, David. There is redemption, but John is the first to admit that he's very lucky indeed to be alive today, and that there was a price to be paid. The truth will set you free, but not until it's finished with you. For movies this week, Dan reviews Bending the Ark. If you need a jolt of encouragement, watch this origin story about the three founders of Partners in Health. The title of the documentary comes from a quote by the 19th century abolitionist minister Theodore Parker. Quote, I do not pretend to understand the moral universe. The ark is a long one. My eye reaches but little ways. And from what I see, I'm sure it bends towards justice. The story begins in 1983 when Ophelia Dahl, age 18, met Paul Farmer, age 23, in Haiti where they both followed a passion to serve the poor through health care. When Farmer matriculated at Harvard Medical School in December of 1983, he met Jim Kim, and the three of them started PIH in 1987 with the generosity of the philanthropist Tom White. PIH revenue in 2018 was $148 million. Farmer would always be the front man in this show, winning numerous awards like a MacArthur Genius Grant. He has written a dozen books, most recently a 700-page history of Ebola called Fevers, Feuds, and Diamonds. PIH has always been predictably critical of first-world wealthy bureaucracies that made excuses for not helping the poor. So it is a marvelous irony that in 2012, Kim became president of the World Bank. One of the many lessons Farmer shares is how he gained a respect for the destructive power of poverty. For more on this wonderful story, see the biography by Tracy Kidder, Mountains Beyond Mountains, The Quest of Dr. Paul Farmer, a man who would change the world. I watched this movie on Netflix. And finally, for poems on the seventh Sunday of Easter, The Journey Prayer by St. Brendan the Voyager. God, bless to me this day. God, bless to me this night. Bless, O oh bless, thou God of grace, each day and hour of my life. 
Bless, O oh bless, thou God of grace, each day and hour of my life. God, bless the pathway on which I go. God, bless the earth that is beneath my soul. Bless, O oh God, and give to me thy love. O oh God of gods, bless my rest and my repose. Bless, O oh God, and give to me thy love. And bless, O oh God of gods, my repose. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net from May 16th, 2021. I'm Debbie Thomas.